want to publicly thank the uh, pastor and pastoral staff for their patience. You know, there have been a few days this week where I wondered whether I might be related to John the Baptist <clears throat> because his father was struck dumb in the presence of Gabriel when he did not believe the word that Gabriel bought, brought from the Heavenly Father. And you know, when John the Baptist was born, you would think, well, he could speak again, but of course not. It had to wait until the day of circumcision of the child. Um, I am assured by Dr. Dave that uh, the malady which will uh, probably make my, my voice decline is uh, just a normal weakness of the flesh. Well, let's open up with prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this early sermon by his servant, Peter, and that it is here for our blessing, benefited instruction. Lord, we need to hear these words and take them to heart, especially as we come to your table. And so we pray, O oh God, for that great Holy Spirit's work of illumination in spite of ourselves. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday evening, we saw the miracle. The miracle of the healing of the lame beggar who had been that way apparently from birth and everyone knew him. And the fact that he was healed was a wonderful and amazing miracle of God. Tonight we hear the message that was given in the wake of that miracle in Solomon's portico by the Apostle Peter. We see in this passage, first of all, that God did great things. God made covenant promises, we are told, and that is a great thing for God to do. Acts chapter 3 and verse 13 reads, The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Don't think this mentioning of the names of the three, first three great patriarchs of old is just hanging in midair by itself. As we get to the end of the sermon, that thread sewn once or twice there is then picked up on again and sewn again into the tapestry of Peter's argument. He says... In verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The beginning of the sermon and the end of the sermon rests upon God's beautiful, wonderful, great covenant promises to his people. Now make no mistake about it. These were not born of narrow or bigoted or ethnic national slurs. It's not that the sons of Israel, they were good and great because of their genetics and their history. And, you know, they're a wonderful people in and of themselves, as all peoples of the earth are so 
often tempted to boast. Uh, we we have a new our, a new granddaughter who's over in Edinburgh, Scotland. Have you all heard of that yet? <laughs> if anyone would like to see a new fresh picture, just come up afterwards. And in that land where we sojourned for so long and had our first son born there, I think. Uh, there's much to be proud of. There are kilts and bagpipes. There are thistles and all sorts of curious food like haggis. As the nation of Scotland, uh, as an ethnic group, was beginning to uh, come out of its eggshells, they even fancied, as so many nations of Europe did, that they had to have their roots back in Egypt or in Rome in order to justify their great and substantial national standing and tradition. And so my Scottish forefathers boasted in nonsense rather than in the good creation and history which God had given them. But there's no bigotedness here. There's no nationalism here in this text. Peter is not driven by some sort of false historicism. This is the very word of God that he's quoting and he's breaking out and laying out before the people as much as the bread will soon be broken for us. It's the language of covenant theology known to all of Peter's hearers. God made and kept these covenant promises in spite of man's rebellion. Man failed to keep the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. But God freely chose to establish another covenant, the great covenant of grace. And this covenant, the covenant of grace, is what is laid open here by Peter to his hearers. You know the covenant of grace. It began in the first giving of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Though intended from all eternity, that was the first hint of it. That was the first declared hope of it to lift the hearts of his people. It continued through the great Noahic covenant of preservation and stability of the created order, which God by his own hand and his own will, his own divine power achieved. It was by grace and it was for, for grace, for the gracious redemptive end that he intended for his people. And here is specified the Abrahamic covenant of promise. And there in its train is the Mosaic and the Davidic, which naturally also follows. All, all of this finds its fulfillment not in itself, but rather in the glorious end. The glorious end to which all of the covenants point and pull our heart and our life and our hope. The new covenant, which fulfills them all by the hand of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, God made great covenant promises, but He also sent the great covenant keeper, Jesus Christ. 13b declares that, that God glorified His servant Jesus, 
whom you delivered over. Jesus is the servant who is glorified by all his great covenant keeping. Our Heavenly Father sent His Son to dwell in covenant faithfulness to fulfill covenant promises of salvation for us and in us. The Son of God took flesh and dwelt among us. He voluntarily embraced this lowly calling of suffering to live and die for our sins. He was the first Adam. He was the final Adam, as he's called under inspiration, who accomplished what Adam could not. He achieved salvation, full and free and sure. He faced the devil down. Though bruised on the tree, he defeated him once and for all. His chosen ones, Jews, And Gentiles, both as promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New, are now sons and daughters of the King. And God kept His covenant promise in Jesus Christ. Verse 18 tells us, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Son would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Jesus, the promised seed of the woman, was crushed. He was the one who crushed the head of the serpent and crushed him into the dirt by defeating him on Calvary. Though even at Calvary, he was bit and his heel was bruised. He triumphed on that tree and he will be seen to triumph on the day he returns. Jesus, the Son of God, holds all the universe together. And He will not let His people go. No one will snatch us out of His hands. He is the promised one in whom all of the earth will be blessed. Not just narrowly the Jewish people, but from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. To all those nations and beyond to which His people were dispersed in the great exile. He became his wider people's substitute, solving our root problem of original sin and our fruit problem of rebellion, anger, hatred, wrath, and evil as described in our New Testament reading earlier. Jesus kept all the law for his people. He's both the Son of God and the Son of David. And he reigns Forever. As the one mediator between God and man, he fulfills all the aspects of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. As the New Testament, new covenant, covenant of grace keeper. And God glorified his his covenant keeper. In verse 13b we hear... God glorified His servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. God loved His covenant keeper. He glorified His covenant keeper for His covenant faithfulness all the way through. What was agreed to back before creation 
was spoken into being by God, that is what He, Jesus, does for us. For us and for our salvation. Do you see your glorious Savior? Do you see Him as glorified by His heavenly Father? It's resurrection light that Peter is here speaking of. God did great things for us in the covenant and covenant keeper. But by contrast, the apostle makes the obvious point that Israel did not. Israel did not do great things. Israel rejected the covenant keeper. They delivered him over to Pilate, as we've just read. Now, who was Pilate? He was Caesar's. Silly vassal who served his divine emperor. How can I make you see that? How can I make you feel that, I wondered. Well, did you watch Star Wars? You know, the first of them. I, I don't know what number, if you reorder them chronologically, that might be. But you know, in the first one, do you remember Emperor Palpatine? That ugly, evil, mean, devious, wicked one filled with strange, don't worry, with strange power where he could do horrible things. He could charge and change the whole scene and direction of the movie. You see, the story of Jesus we know all too well. We know it so well that we tend not to even see it, not to even hear it when it's read. Brothers and sisters, the crucifixion of Jesus under the authority of Pontius Pilate was not some mere error of bureaucratic jurisprudence or procedure. It was not even a riotous insurrection which intimidated the political officials into doing the will of the Jews. It was a satanic strike against the promised seed of the woman. Caesar is the model for all antichrists. He's the antichrist antichrist. He's the first, the fountainhead, the mother of all antichrists flowing down through the ages to its appointed end. And the sons of Israel handed the divine Messiah, the son of God and the son of David, they handed him over to the enemy for destruction rather than the honor which he deserved. They denied him. Verse 13 says, Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And then right on its heels we hear it repeated a second time. Verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Demonic Pilate, even demonic Pilate, had chosen to release him. But they, they preferred a murderer 
to go free. And for him, the Lord of glory, to be crucified. And so verse 15 tells us, And you killed the author of life. They didn't drive the nails. They didn't hoist him up on the tree. But they enabled it. They demanded it. They cheered it. Do you see the seriousness of that? They killed him as surely as they had pulled the trigger. The guilt was theirs. And to be frank, according to the Ten Commandments, rightly understood through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, that means that their guilt was deeper even than Pilate's and Caesar's. Of all in the world and down through human history, they should have known. They knew or should have known. They stood without excuse. But Peter doesn't end there. Peter then changes gears and he says, But God. But God, rich in mercy, he says, did not let them go. He, God, powerfully sent His Word and Spirit. Now one of the nice things about a series being preached is that you get to follow week to week and stone upon stone upon stone and you can get a feeling for the more larger whole. First, we read about Pentecost power, didn't we? Pentecost power of wind and fire and tongues and gospel preaching that occurred in its wake. And then there was post-Pentecostal blessing. 3,000 souls saved on that day in spite of themselves. And now before us is this impossible miracle. Unheard of. One lame from birth. Twisted. Seen every day. An object of mercy. And perhaps also something of despite. They were shocked. They ran to see him, we were told. And amazingly, God's mercy flowed again. Again, God was merciful to them. They heard the word of grace come from Peter's mouth. Now, Peter was a big fisherman. And that meant that he didn't know the Queen's English. He didn't even know the Queen's Greek. The Petrine epistles had been so smoothed over in their translation, they hide or obscure the roughness both of his hands and of his tongue. He preached a sermon here far beyond his native human abilities. 
God poured out his word inspired through him to lift up the people that they might be touched by the word of God and transformed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. On this day, God used Peter, even Peter, to shake them. Not 3,000, not 4,000, 5,000 souls were saved at once by God's covenant of grace, power, and the ministry of his word and spirit. God did great things again in the passage in front of us. And he glorified Jesus. And where was Jesus? When he's glorifying him here in Acts chapter 3. He's ascended and on the very throne of God. He is there seen by all the angels and the spirits departed. The cherubim and the seraphim, they are there crying out glory and honor to his name. The train of his robe is filling the temple. Adoration of the unseen beings swells and circles through all of the created order. This was not a work of social concern. This was not a work of benevolent endeavor. There are times in which to do such things. As we've already seen, when God saves thousands of people and they have to be trained in the Christian faith so they can take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth from which they had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Praise the Lord. Take up a collection. Sell the farm. Get busy doing what God is doing. Cooperate with the Lord in the expansion of his kingdom. This was a planned, a decreed, a purpose-filled miracle to spotlight Jesus as Lord. He is God. His power is irresistible. That means He can even save the likes of you and me. A sinner like me a sinner like you, he can save us in spite of ourselves and he can make us sons and daughters of the king and usher us into his very presence forever. The apostles here recorded are witnesses of this great resurrection power. And the apostles tell us what remains to be done. Peter delivers the message. But it's one that we see consistently through the whole book of Acts. We must repent. Verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 26. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wickedness. Repentance has kind of fallen on hard times recently, hasn't it? Repentance is not a very popular topic in evangelicalism. That's because a lot of evangelicalism doesn't even begin to live up to the name. You must 
turn to the Savior. And that means turning away from your sins. You must look to Christ. You must trust in Him. I'm not saying that you're going to live in this life in absolute perfection. But I am saying that the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit brings blessings in its train. And that sets you on a road to a progressive growth in grace and a greater and greater daily conformity to Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, I know what it's like. What it's like for you is what it's like for me, believer. Two steps, three steps forward. One step, two step back. Sometimes we fall flat on our face and the Lord has to pick us up off the floor and dust us off and get our feet planted and strengthened again. But there is a real decision and volition that He works by the power of His Holy Spirit to turn us to the Savior and to let us see sin for what it is. And it's okay to tell people that they're sinners. And it's okay to tell Christians that they need to feel the depth of our sin. Look to the cross. Look to Christ and the suffering of God's eternal Son there and in the flesh and you will see it. And we must receive Jesus Christ as Lord. <laughs> we must receive Him in heart and in life. Verse 20 says, And that He may send the Christ appointed to you, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. You must receive Him. You must receive Him in heart and life. We will, as a church, receive Him. We will see Him. Every, every eye shall see. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we will be refreshed. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Verse 20. And so tonight, I have a question for you, a thread I want to pull. Actually, I'm not the only one pulling it. Peter's pulling it. Peter has a hold of a thread on your coat, and he's pulling it right now. Will you? Will you repent of sin and trust in Christ? Okay, trust in Christ and repent of sin. There are two sides to the same coin. One demands the other. Will you be refreshed by the good grace and blessings of the Lord? Do you trust in Him? Do you have faith in Him? Have you cast your heart and care upon Him alone? And are you ready for His return to see Him face to face? You know, when you're old, you feel the shadow begin to fall upon your face. When you're young, you have not the slightest idea what I'm talking about. Your blood pressure is low. Your smile is big. And 
that's fine in and of itself, step by step. But do you see that Christ is coming? Do you see your need for him and to be ready for him? That is what Peter is calling us to here as he calls us to his table, the table of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray.